This is a Young Gunners podcast from Texas Young Lawyers Association. Uh, we cut through the noise and discuss practical tips and challenges facing new attorneys in Texas and the United States. I'm your host for this episode, Tim Williams, and we are podcasting from Amarillo, Texas today. Uh, we're going to be talking about the Texas Citizens Participation Act, uh, and that's known as the anti-slap statute. I've got a special guest with us today, uh, Jeremy Young, who's going to be teaching us a little bit about the anti-slap statute. Jeremy, would you uh, introduce yourself, please? Sure. Uh, Jeremy Young. Um, I practice and have practiced in Amarillo since about 2005. And I do uh, civil litigation with an emphasis on uh, employment law, um, construction, and contested probate matters. Okay. Now, Jeremy, you said you practiced in Amarillo since 2005. Uh, when did you first get licensed? So I was licensed in 99. Um, began practicing in Dallas uh, after uh, going to school at the University of Texas. And I was there for about six years before my wife and I decided to leave Dallas and move back to the Texas Panhandle. Uh, we are from here and uh, started having kids and decided we'd rather raise them in a smaller community. Uh, so we returned here in 2005. Okay. Now, where did you go to work in 2005? In 2005, I opened a branch office of my Dallas law firm uh, here in Amarillo and did that for about a year. Um Part of the deal uh, when I opened that branch was that I would be in the Dallas office once a week, uh, or at least once a week. So I, um, between June of 2015 and June of 2016, I logged 62 round-trip flights from Dallas to Amarillo going back and forth for work. Uh, After a year of that, I decided uh, I no longer needed to be affiliated with my Dallas firm and didn't like that travel, and so I opened my own firm in the summer of 2006. Okay, so what was it like opening your your own firm? Terrifying. Uh, All of a sudden, you go from getting a paycheck to being the person that's responsible for writing those paychecks. Um, I started my uh, office on a shoestring budget and was living off savings. I did not have a single paying client the day I opened my firm. Um, And so uh, it was just me, no staff. Um, I did uh, uh, all of my own uh, secretarial work, and I was the IT guy, and I was the marketing guy. Uh, I did it all. And so it was a challenge for the first uh, couple of years. Okay. And how did you go about building your practice? Probably a lot of traditional ways, uh, online marketing, uh, some print media marketing, uh, but Most of uh, my quality clients come from referrals from other lawyers, and uh, to this day, that's probably where we get the majority of our work, is just uh, making making other lawyers aware of what we do. Um, And I always tell young lawyers that the the best marketing you can do to get new clients is what you do in the courtroom uh, or at a deposition or when you're actually doing your job, because there are people there paying attention, whether it's the judge, uh, opposing counsel, uh, the court reporter, or the clients. And uh, I've always felt that the highest compliment a lawyer, especially a litigator, can get is a referral from opposing counsel. And we get a lot of those where lawyers that we've been on uh, the other side of uh, send us clients. Um, One of my favorite stories is uh, that I'm I'm, I'm proud of is we tried a lawsuit in which I had sued a trucking company for an employment law violation. The trial lasted three days. Uh, We lost the case. 
And uh, following the trial on the courthouse steps, the defendant, uh, the president of the company, the company that we sued, approached me and asked me if I would represent his company going forward. That's a that's a huge compliment coming from the opposing party. So it was a surreal experience on the courthouse steps. I'll tell you that. So, what does your practice look like uh, today? You know, fast forward from 2005, where you're you're running your shop by yourself. What is your practice like today? We're blessed to have more work uh, than we can we can comfortably do. And unfortunately, we have to turn clients away on a regular basis just so that we don't uh, exceed the bandwidth uh, that our law firm is capable of. Um, but that also gives us the opportunity to cherry pick our clients. We get to choose whom we represent uh, and under what circumstances. And if it looks like somebody's going to be uh, uh, difficult, then we can pass. Um, so uh, we're in a good spot. Well, any other tips you would give to uh, new or younger lawyers that are thinking about uh, opening up their own shop? Yeah, I mean, I would say you need to uh, prepare a budget. You need to figure out what it's going to cost to run your law office. Um, Technology has made it far easier uh, over the last 10, 15 years for a solo practitioner to start their own firm um, and can be really a a way to level the playing field with larger firms, uh, practice management software, um, uh, document preparation software. These things are all um, available, you know, at at lower and lower cost and can really make the practice of law more and more efficient. Um, So I would say, uh, you know, do a budget and take advantage of technology uh, when starting your practice. And then um, as important as anything, know that how well you do your job, how well you uh, work your craft is probably the best marketing that you'll ever do. Okay, now shifting gears a little bit, um, of course we're here today to talk about the uh, anti-slap statute. Could you give us a little bit of background about that statute? When was it enacted, the circumstances around enacting it, and kind of what it was geared towards uh, when it was first enacted? So the history of the statute, a little more than a decade ago, Texas began researching uh, laws that had been enacted by other states that were intended to um, discourage what they call slap lawsuits. Um, those are uh, lawsuits that are that are filed to sort of prevent someone from exercising their right to speech, association, or petition. The classic case would be a newspaper that reports uh, wrong, wrongdoing uh, by a large corporation. And the large corporation sues the newspaper for defamation and spends a colossal amount of money essentially driving that newspaper out of business, all because the newspaper was doing its constitutionally protected uh, job. So in 2011, the Texas legislature followed the, um, the lead of several other states and passed our anti-slap statute, which is the Texas Citizens Participations Act. Um, and, and the intent behind the statute was, was to protect the rights of citizens in Texas to, uh, to speak, um, to petition, and to associate with others. Now, uh, I feel like recently we've been hearing a lot more about the anti-slap statute, but obviously it's been on the books for um, eight, eight years or so now. And why do you think it is that we're hearing more about it now than we were, you know, 2012? So the statute was crafted or was drafted in a way that made it um, far made it far broader in its application than was intended and some very clever lawyers uh, some years ago began to discover this statute and realize uh, that because of the way 
The way the statute's defined, it applies to a far greater number and type of lawsuits than I think the legislature ever intended. Essentially, any lawsuit that involves uh, or is based on a communication of any type can implicate this statute. And, and frankly, if, if you think about most lawsuits, especially civil lawsuits, whether they're contract claims or quasi-contract claims or tort claims, there's usually some element of communication uh, that led to a breach, for example, or led to a tort. Um, and so um, these uh, clever lawyers have found a way to apply the statute and get cases dismissed. Um, and so you've seen an uptick, particularly in the last four to five years, uh, of litigation around the statute. Okay, now your uh, practice includes employment law. Have you seen any instances where the statute has been expanded to uh, encompass some of the areas that you uh, practice in? Sure. There are a number of employment cases that, that have been uh, litigated uh, under the TCPA. Um, I'll, I'll give you an overview of the facts of, of a couple of those cases. So um, an executive at a company uh, is terminated, and that termination uh, relates to um, you know something that was said about the employee's conduct uh, at the workplace. Um, the employee files a termination case, a wrongful termination case, and or asserts retaliation claims. Um, because those claims relate to uh, communications that, that preceded the termination, then the act is implicated. Um, there are at least two cases where the plaintiff, the employee the plaintiff in those cases, was able to um, or was not able to pursue her claim. Uh, those claims were dismissed under the very stringent evidentiary standard that we'll talk about in a minute uh, that applies to TCPA claims. Okay, let's let's uh, talk a little bit about the mechanics of the anti-slap statute. Uh, somebody files a lawsuit. Uh, you think the anti-slap statute may apply. Uh, how do you go about raising those issues, and when do you have to do that? The statute allows, actually requires a party to file a motion to dismiss under the TCPA within 60 days of the filing of the legal action. And legal action is... Um, very broadly defined under the statute and has been construed to to include things like not only a lawsuit, but a counterclaim, um, a pre-suit petition to investigate a claim under Rule 202, um, and various types of motion practice. And so once a legal action has been filed, um, the the opposing party has 60 days in which to file a motion to dismiss. Okay, now is that different? You have 60 days from when it was filed or 60 days from when you have to answer the lawsuit? It's 60 days from when it was served. So if it was if it's a lawsuit or a pleading or whatever, the, the trigger date is the service date. Okay. And what all, you know, the statute, uh, I think, addresses matter of public concern is kind of the area that, that it uh, applies to. Uh, what all falls within the umbrella of a matter of public concern? So you're correct um, that matter of public concern is recited in the statute, However, um, I have yet to see a case either at the uh, appellate court or Supreme Court level that found that the issue implicated was not one of public concern. The reality is that the way the statute's been construed, that requirement, the public concern requirement, has really been written out of the statute by the courts. Um, Almost anything conceivably uh, involved in a lawsuit can be argued to be a matter of public concern, whether it's a a physician's contract with his hospital or a, um, a statement that someone makes on Facebook about a private citizen. 
virtually anything um, uh, lawyers have managed to argue and successfully argue implicates um, public concerns. And so I tell people that that's really not a factor in deciding um, whether the TCPA applies. It will. The courts have found almost everything to fall within the public concern. Okay. Now, when you file your anti-slap motion, um, what, what do you need to do? What do you need to include um, to meet your burden uh, to have a case dismissed? So you just have to recite um, the elements required for the statute to apply, uh, that you've got a legal action uh, that is based on, relates to, or is in response to that legal action, and that it implicates a right to speech, petition, or association. All of those terms are defined. Uh, Some of them have very lengthy definitions in the statute, Um, and as many courts have observed, these definitions are are far broader than the way these concepts are defined under the federal and Texas constitutions. So you got to look at those definitions, and when you do, uh, you just track the statute in filing your motion uh, to, uh, to activate to, to activate the statute's requirements. And what kind of proof do you need? Um, do you have an evidentiary hearing? How do you prove up that the statute applies? The court, uh, in determining applicability of the statute, just looks at the pleadings and any affidavits that may, may be submitted. Affidavits are optional, uh, but generally the court just, just looks at the, uh, the pleading itself to determine if the elements of the TCPA have been met. Okay. Now, if the court looks at the elements, sees uh, that they have been met, and you're the party bringing the lawsuit, so you're the employee that says, hey, wait a second, uh, this doesn't apply here, what can you do? Uh, What's your burden to defeat an anti-slap motion? Obviously, you can argue in a responsive motion or at the hearing that one or more requirements of of TCPA applicability are not not present. And you should do that if you think the statute doesn't apply. But even if you do that, you still need to be prepared at the hearing uh, to put out, to put forth clear and specific evidence, which is the evidentiary standard that the respondent has to meet. In this case, the plaintiff has to meet to uh, to survive dismissal. Clear and specific evidence is a brand new evidentiary uh, threshold that's not been used before, as far as I know, uh, in Texas law. We don't know exactly what it means. We know it's something short of um, clear and convincing, um, but it's something more than just notice pleading. So there is a requirement that you come forth with that clear and specific evidence for each element of each cause of action that you've asserted in order to survive dismissal. Okay. Now, some of the other unique features of the anti-slap statute uh, pertain to discovery during the lawsuit. Um, if an anti-slap motion is filed, uh, can the parties still conduct discovery? No. The filing of an anti-slap motion uh, stays discovery automatically. Um, there is a provision in the statute that allows a court to permit discovery at its discretion for the limited purpose of deciding the TCPA motion to dismiss, uh, but you do have to get leave from court to do that. Okay. Now, uh, uh, the TCPA... Uh, Either side, let's say the judge rules uh, that it does does apply or does not apply. Uh, can you appeal that decision? The uh, denial of a motion to dismiss under the TCPA may be appealed on an interlocutory basis. The granting of a motion to dismiss cannot be appealed. And so, again, the, the statute is 
is stacked in favor of uh, encouraging courts um, to dismiss the claims that are subject to the TCPA um, and um, either a dismissal or if the, the court just doesn't act on the motion, um, in which case it's overruled or denied by operation of law after uh, 30 days after the, the date on which it should be heard, uh, that too may be appealed on an interlocutory basis. Okay, so if you file a motion under the anti-slap statute, it gets denied, uh, you appeal. What happens to the lawsuit, the underlying lawsuit? It stays um, frozen or stayed. Uh, There's no discovery. No additional um, action can be taken by the trial court until the conclusion of the appeal. Okay. Um, Now, one of the things uh, that I've seen uh, a lot of conversation about is the fee-shifting provision in the anti-slap statute and attorney's fees awards. Uh, Could you tell us a little bit about that and how it works? So the statute requires trial courts to award attorney's fees, uh, litigation costs, and sanctions uh, to a party whose claim is dismissed by virtue of a TCPA motion to dismiss. Um, And you see a trend among the courts um, uh, beginning several years ago as these motions are being being granted and these cases are dismissed. You see a lot of courts that say, I'm not going to sanction this litigant. I'm not going to award attorney's fees. They were just exercising their right to file a lawsuit, to have their grievance decided in court, and I'm not going to punish them for that even though under this statute I have to dismiss the case. And time after time after time, you see those decisions on appeal being reversed. And the appellate court saying, the statute says what it says. Trial court, you must award attorney's fees and you must award sanctions. Uh, That relief and and the reality for some litigants that they're going to have to pay fees uh, has come as great surprise to many lawyers and many clients over the last few years. Now, on the flip side, uh, if you successfully defeat uh, an anti-slap motion, uh, are you entitled to recover your attorney's fees and costs for that? No. Then you just have the privilege of of allowing, uh, of moving forward to get discovery and uh, litigate your case as you would had the motion not been filed. Now, based on that fee-shifting provision, uh, do you think the anti-slap statute has actually served to to, uh, quell or reduce the number of lawsuits that have been filed because of this fear that if I go to court and complain about this, uh, I'm going to be hit with an attorney's fee bill? I absolutely think that it's quelling the filing of lawsuits. Um, In my practice alone, you know, every case that comes in the door we evaluate that case through the lens of the TCPA and and try to decide and try to advise our clients of the risk that a motion to dismiss might be filed, that their case might be dismissed, and that they might have to pay attorney's fees, sanctions, and costs. Um, In my opinion, if uh, litigators are not considering that or not going through that analysis before they file claims or counterclaims, they could be in serious trouble and, and arguably um, you know, maybe on the hook to write a check for costs if they haven't disclosed that risk to their client. Now, obviously, you've, uh, you've researched the statute and um, you've looked at the case law, the recent case law. Are there any cases that you think are just kind of unique in either how they uh, expand the scope of the anti-slap statute or just, I mean, basically have unique facts that, that are be fun to talk about here? There's a case out of uh, the Austin Court of Appeals called Craig versus Tejas Promotions, 
Uh, I think this case is interesting for, for a number of reasons, but it, it has to do with an area of practice that we spend a lot of time dealing with, and that is uh, non-disclosure agreements in the context, in this case, of a business sale. Um, so in the Craig case, a, one company was, uh, was considering selling to a potential buyer. Um, these were two sophisticated businesses, and uh, the buyer obviously wanted to do some due diligence, get some financial documents, uh, some information about the customer base of the seller, um, and um, uh, its marketing techniques, pricing methods, a lot of things that, as you can imagine, the, the seller considered to be trade secrets. And they were trade secrets. Uh, so the companies entered into a non-disclosure agreement that would govern their negotiations and consideration of the purchase of this business. Um, the negotiations fell apart at some point, and uh, as, as you can probably guess, the uh, entity that was going to buy uh, then went out and used the customer information, the pricing information, the financial information uh, from the would-be seller to compete in the marketplace. Well, the would-be seller filed a lawsuit, uh, and um, absent the TCPA, uh, just reading the opinion, most lawyers would look at that and say, yeah, this wasn't fair. Uh, the parties had a deal that they were going to exchange this information, and the, uh, the seller then used it uh, to the, excuse me, the buyer, the would-be buyer, used it to, to the detriment of the would-be seller. Well, the defendant in the case uh, filed a motion to dismiss under the TCPA, claiming that um, those communications between the parties uh, as part of the, um, the negotiations to sell the company were protected speech, and therefore um, the, the case should be dismissed. As I recall, the trial court uh, denied that motion, and as we discussed, uh, there was an interlocutory appeal. An appeal was filed, and the Court of Appeals said, well, even though we don't like it, statute is clearly implicated here. There were communications between the parties, and this lawsuit is based on or relates to those communications. Uh, therefore, it should have dis been dismissed, and the case was remanded for an award of uh, attorney's fees, sanctions, and costs. Now, we talked about one of the requirements that you, uh, based on your review of case law, you said oh, it doesn't really apply the matter of public concern. How did the court square this um, arm's length transaction, non-disclosure agreement between two parties uh, with a, a matter of public concern. Yeah, I don't remember the, the analysis uh, or even if there was an analysis undertaken by that court. Again, what you typically are seeing in the more recent decisions is um, the courts of appeals citing to Texas Supreme Court precedent that pretty much everything is a matter of public concern. And so um, negotiations with between two private companies for a potential sale, you know, that could impact the marketplace. It could impact their customers. Uh, therefore, that's a matter of public concern. Again, I don't know if the court undertook that analysis, but that's uh, the sort of lip service that the courts are paying to the public concern element in most of these cases. Okay, so if you are a young lawyer and you've got uh, you've got a client in your office that says, "Hey, I've, I've got this this lawsuit." Uh, this happened to me, uh, and, and now you turn your eye to the uh, anti-slap statute. I mean, what are some things that you need to ask your potential client, or what are some issues that you need to be on the lookout for uh, before you decide whether you want to take that case or whether you advise that client to file a lawsuit? So obviously, um, from the very beginning of that meeting with your client, in, at least in your head as a lawyer, you need to be thinking about, okay, what are the potential causes of action? 
that this client has. And um, as you formulate those causes of action, you need to be asking questions about evidence that would support those causes of action. So um, is this a, a breach of fiduciary duty case? Well, if so, um, were there communications uh, from the fiduciary to the, uh, to the beneficiary uh, that were made in connection, you know, with, uh, that were made that might relate to the case? And if so, uh, are those TCPA-related communications? If so, then you've got to evaluate, um, b- before you ever agree to take on the client, you've got to evaluate the risk that a motion might be filed and uh, you have to have what, in my experience, are very difficult communications with clients to try to explain this statute, why it works the way that it does, and what the risks are. Um, and then ultimately, you want to memorialize that in your fee agreement or your engagement letter or whatever written um, document that you have to memorialize the relationship with your client. Uh, you want to include in that that you've discussed with them the risks that the TCPA may apply and the potential consequences if it does. All right, and Jeremy, have you received any uh, perspective from the bench uh, as to some judges' opinion about the anti-slap statute? Judges almost universally uh, dislike this statute. Um, I've had judges tell me, in either in discussing the statute or in ruling on motions under the statute, that they believe the statute's uh, um, an attempt to solve a problem that doesn't exist. Um, Courts believe that we already have, and we do have, procedural mechanisms in place to dismiss cases that don't have merit. And this is simply a, uh, the TCPA is just a, uh, uh, an additional uh, onerous and burdensome um, exercise for the trial court to undertake to dismiss cases um, without giving the litigants an opportunity to, to get discovery and information and uh, take depositions. Um, So as as a rule, judges don't like these statutes at all, but don't like this statute at all. Okay. Now, fast forward a couple years, do you think that there are going to be efforts to kind of rein in the scope of the anti-slap statute, and what do you think that will look like? Efforts are underway right now in the the Texas legislative session. Uh, Bills have been introduced to try to limit the scope of this statute. Um, I think many lawyers... uh, Practicing lawyers and judges recognize the statute is being used in ways that the legislation never intended. And so uh, I do think it's just a matter of time before um, we do see the imposition of reasonable limitations to try to narrow the statute so that it does what it was intended to do rather than sucking in unsuspecting litigants in cases that that the legislation never intended the statute to cover. Okay. And um, have you had any um, experiences with cases you have filed related to the anti-slap statute? I have. Um, I was rudely introduced to the statute after filing um, a case that was um, a defamation case on behalf of a local group of school teachers um, claiming that they had said some bad things about a child with disabilities. Um, the uh, the merits of our, our case uh, ultimately were not decided, although the motion to dismiss against us was denied. Um, I wonder what would have happened if an appeal had been filed, having read all of the courts of appeal decisions on that. So, so yes, we've encountered the statute being used against us. Um, we have felt compelled to use it in certain cases, although I don't necessarily agree 
uh, with the statutes. Uh, part of my job is to use the tools that, that the courts and the legislature have made available to my clients uh, for their benefit. Um, so this is a statute that we think about in our practice every day and that we think most civil litigators should also be thinking about every day and with every case. Okay, and, and that's part of the, you know, what we're doing here with the podcast is to talk about some issues that will affect uh, young lawyers. And so I think this is certainly a, a big area of substantive law uh, where you could uh, you, you could file a case and not know the implications of it. And so I think kind of a broad overview of the statute um, is helpful. Do you have anything else, any other advice uh, that you'd give our, our listeners about the anti-slap statute or any other areas uh, that you want to share with us? I alluded to this earlier, but I think every lawyer should uh, revise uh, his or her fee agreement to address the risks under the TCPA. Um, you need to have discussions with your clients about those risks early and often in the litigation. And I think that um, every lawyer should conduct significant pre-suit investigation, uh, even more so than maybe we've done in the past, with a specific view toward um, preparing for a hearing under the TCPA. So gathering evidence that you can use to meet your clear and specific evidentiary burden, uh, whether that is affidavits or documents or other things, uh, you want to gather that early and have it ready so that um, when discovery is stayed, you're not surprised and you're already prepared to go forward and defeat that motion if it's filed. And as you mentioned, I mean, it's a, an expedited process when you file the motion and then when it's heard. And so obviously having those uh, affidavits and evidence already lined up is going to be beneficial for you in the event that, that a motion is filed. That's right. Well, Jeremy, thank you for your time today. Uh, We certainly do appreciate it. Um, And we're glad you had an opportunity to speak with us and educate us about the anti-slap statute. Yeah, thanks, Tim.